0: hey how's it going champagne sharks hope everyone's doing well just wanted to uh, do some quick house cleaning let people know. Go to ChampagneSharks.com and you get access to all the links related to Champagne Sharks. You can go there and find it all. And you can find where we are on social media, our products, all that stuff. Also, Patreon benefits, which includes Discord server, book club night, movie night discussions, show notes, newsletter, and most importantly, bonus episodes. So definitely become a patron for $5 a month at Patreon.com forward slash Champagne Sharks. And without further ado, here is the episode. Take care.
1: Welcome to Champagne Sharks. I'm Vita Starr, and along with me, we have Mario. How is everybody
2: doing? You see, now, all- <laughs> man, you're the one who's all oh warmed my, up. You, you this, should be this video thing, man.
1: <laughs> you should yeah, be right? I know, I know, I know, uh, man. I'm it, so- we also have. How's everybody tea? doing? Pretty, Pretty good. good.
0: Pretty good. Yeah, yeah. And I'm here as well, having technical difficulties. Having one of those days. It's a Monday, and like Vita said, it's the Russian bots. Was that was that um, Mario that said that? Just yeah, as as yeah. I yeah, yeah. Putin's up and at it again, but <laughs> I think we got it together. <laughs>
1: Um, so we also have a special guest, uh, Dr. Timothy J. Golden. Uh, he is a professor of philosophy at Walla Walla University in Washington State, where he also serves as coordinator of the pre-law legal studies program. Where he is the founder of the Donald Blake Center for the Study of Race, Ethnicity, and Culture. His book, Frederick Douglass and the Philosophy of Religion: and Interpretation of Narrative Art, I'm sorry, of Narrative Art and the political has recently been published with Lexington Books and that's this year and his forthcoming books are an un, are an edited volume entitled Racism and Resistance essays on Derrick Bell's racial realism and another monograph entitled Reasons Dilemma Reasons Dilemma subjectivity transcendence and the problem of ooh I don't know what that word is ontotheology?
2: Yes. onto
1: theology Yes <laughs> You all got all types of new words in academia I don't mm-hmm. know what the hell y'all be talking about onto theology What's, okay, first of all, before I even ask you anything else, what's theology? Because I've never heard that in my life.
3: theology is the, the philosophical way to discuss God. So onto, oh. the prefix onto comes from the Greek word ontos, that means being or what is. And in philosophy, the aim is to try to give a rational explanation of everything. And that, of course, includes God. And so, philosophical attempts to explain God are ontotheological. Theology. Yes, yeah, it's mm-hmm. a problem because the God that we end up talking about when we're trying to prove God's existence is, a, is something other than the God that people claim to worship. It's, it's not quite the same. It's, mm-hmm. it, it's a philosophical idol that sort of reflects the image of whoever is doing the thinking for the arguing got it critical race theory is a legal and social theory that is centered around the problem of racism in america it begins with some reflections of derrick bell who was a civil rights lawyer That litigated cases with the NAACP in the late 50s, early 60s, and begins to see the Supreme Court moving away from certain civil rights victories of that era in the 1970s and going into the 80s. And him and another legal thinker named Richard Delgado essentially put together a collection of ideas. And there's three basic tenets of critical race theory. One is that racism is not peripheral or accidental, but it is central and it is a sort of intentional part of everyday life in America. Uh, Derrick Bell takes this thesis a little further and he says that racism is permanent in America because it has a way of... uh, dissolving and reasserting itself, reinventing itself in different forms. So the first idea is that racism is central and that racism is permanent. The second idea is that there's something called interest convergence, which says that when you look at American history, anytime there has been a perceived degree of progress on the issue of race relations, it's only happening because the interests of whites just so happen to coincide with the hopes and dreams of black people.
1: So if so, they benefit from it, then they support it.
3: If they benefit from it, then it's all good. And black people have often, according to Derrick Bell, taken these moments as victories, when in reality, they were not victories at all. They just so happened to coincide with the interest of white people. And the, the correlate of that is that the day white people find it no longer important, then it's no longer important and black people are going to end up at the bottom of the barrel anyway. So that's the second point. And, and the third principle is this idea of narrative and counter narrative and storytelling. Derek Bell uses his, his literary sensibilities to actually graft fictitious events into historical events to help to make his points about the permanence of racism, the need to resist racism, and so forth and so on. And so that's what critical race theory is. It's a it's a legal theory and a social theory. And the basic idea is that Black people can't pin their hopes and dreams to the American legal system because the legal system operates too abstractly and will end up using a concept like equality to interpret the Constitution in a way that benefits a white person to the exclusion of Black people, despite the fact that the court is interpreting the 14th Amendment, which was ratified with the express purpose of helping newly freed slaves, and it ends up helping a white person defeat affirmative action. This is is why, according to Derrick Bell, racism is permanent. There's something about the way the law And uh, the way lawyers argue, the way the Supreme Court considers cases that basically allows racism to assume a new form and instead of eliminating it it actually reinforces it. So those are the basic ideas.
1: You know, what's interesting. I often think about, especially the interest, interest convergence point. Um, That's when I, I feel like I can see the easiest, at least for me, it's one of those things I always think about because I question, first of all, I question everything, America, white people, <laughs> whatever, you know, <laughs> I question anything that they fuck with, you know? Mm-hmm. um. So like, for example, we talk a lot about um like desegregation, right? Um, I don't believe that it would have happened if it didn't also benefit white America in some way. And one of those ways we know is economically, they got all our money now. (laughs) Right. Whereas before we were keeping it in our own communities. Right. Um, You know, I, I even think about this even re- in regards to women's rights, right? So people talk about, you know, when middle-class white women wanted to the right to work, quote unquote, I even think that was like a scam in a way. Like, they thought they were actually fighting something and winning it. And I actually think it was more so, oh, more bodies in the labor market, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Um,
2: so, I right. yeah, so I don't,
1: I, yes, I question it all, right? Um, yeah. So I find that particular point about interest convert, And I also think, T, you talked about something similar um in one of our shows. It wasn't interest convergence. You called it something else, but now I can't think of what it's called. Um
0: Do you remember so the context?
1: Con- controlled opposition. I was thinking about how interest convergence also can uh, be a part of controlled opposition. So they think They're opposing something. And in reality, it's something that America knows that it will benefit from. So that's what I was thinking about.
3: Yeah. And if you it was interesting, Vita, is that if you study Derrick Bell carefully and I have one of his books right here. This is one of his books. It's called uh, Silent Covenant, the unfulfilled uh, Brown versus Board of Education and the unfulfilled hopes for racial reform. And in this book, what Derek Bell says is that Brown versus the Board of Education didn't really have anything to do with the moral wrongness of racism or the moral wrongness of segregation, but that it was a decision that was essentially an anti-communist decision. And it was anti-communist because after black people came home from fighting Hitler's Germany in Europe, and were supposed to be hailed as heroes, them and their families had to live in the Jim Crow South. Mm. And this was making white America look bad. And at Mm. the time you had a lot of black Americans who, you had, Russians were actually recruiting actively in the black community to get people, black people to join the communist party. And that became a real problem in the early years of the Cold War after World War II. And so, according to Derek Bell, the Supreme Court's unanimous decision was more about trying to protect the image of America abroad in such a way that it could say, at least on the surface, we've ended Jim Crow and our soldiers deserve better. Meanwhile, a lot of the uh, soldiers and other black people in the South who were in segregated schools did not necessarily want their children to go to school with white children they wanted equal facilities and they Derek bell writes in this book silent covenants about how uh, brown versus board of education was wrongly decided he argues that what should have happened is the court should have affirmed Plessy versus Ferguson and made African-American schools in the South equal, giving them equal financial resources, equally qualified black teachers, which there was no shortage of. They just couldn't get jobs at white schools. And he, he the initial Uh, Work of scholarship that really got Derrick Bell noticed in the legal community was his essay that he wrote where he talked about how there was a conflict of interest because lawyers from the NAACP in the 30s and 40s who were fighting segregation were pursuing an integration strategy but their clients who were the families that were li- families of kids who were living in in the Jim Crow South didn't necessarily want integration they wanted equally funded school
1: right i and, think about well just to that point in particular so, i think about how after desegregation the black skilled schools were still fucked up like i went to a really fucked up high school I went to, in fact both of my high I went to two different high schools for one in ninth grade and then the rest of my in a different school and um rest of my years in a different school and they were ex- two of the worst schools in the district like the absolute worst right I want to say both of those schools were in the top five worst schools in the district um and at the time I was going it was majority black um now it's black and Latino but it's just interesting to me that after desegregation what the actual fight was for we actually never got it never happened but we have a whole but america got all of its uh publicity right they right. they still show that little black girl walking to school you know walking to the school with the yellow dress and the uh security around her you know what i'm talking that that image with the norman that's rockwell
3: right. that's right
1: um, so you still have, so you have these images, you have, you know, the images of these black students who were so brave and these white people were being mean, but they're, you know, the black kids are fighting, you know, but nobody talks about the fact that we never actually got the shit. It never happened. They showed us black people going to white schools. And if you talk to most of the people that I, up will like this, people I know in real life that were the first to integrate their schools did not have good things to say about that system. A lot of them. Were abused in these schools. A lot of them were bullied. A lot of them were uh, mistreated by the staff. A lot of them let the students mistreat them. Right. So you hear these stories a lot from people who actually lived in those eras. But you mm-hmm. never have the conversation about how the that shit never actually happened. All that we our kids got spat on for what? For what? So I think right. about that a lot.
3: That, that's right. Uh, that's right, Vita. And I, I think what so Derek Bell argues that if you're a lawyer and you work for the NAACP the Legal Defense Fund and you're representing a, a family who's trying to get their kid uh, a better education, you actually have a conflict of interest because your goal of integration is not necessarily the family's goal of an equal school. Mm -hmm. And he called the essay Serving Two Masters because your loyalty is divided. And this creates a real ethical conundrum for the lawyer because you have, as a lawyer, as a practicing lawyer, you have a professional and ethical obligation to pursue what is in the best interest of your client and to pursue the goals and objectives that your client wants you to pursue. Uh, and so that was really the beginning of of Derrick Bell's notoriety. Uh, as far as who Derrick Bell is, again, he's he's born and raised in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Graduated from the University of Pittsburgh School of Law in 1957. He went to the South and did civil rights litigation with the NAACP. At the time, Thurgood Marshall was the head of the NAACP's legal department and of course Derrick Bell worked closely with him in litigating cases and eventually Derrick Bell went on to pursue a career in legal academics. He was dean of the law school at the University of Oregon in the early 1980s early to mid 1980s and then he went on to Harvard University where he became the first African-American tenured law professor at Harvard and he got fired from Harvard because is he took a, leave he
1: of a
3: real one? <laughs> <laughs> that probably, yeah. He took a leave of Absence, uh, an extended leave of absence in protest because Harvard University School of Law had, Harvard Law School, rather, had never hired a black woman on its law faculty. What?
1: And a black man standing up for black? a black woman? That doesn't happen? What are you right. talking about? That's Don't right. Don't you know that the black men in the civil rights <laughs> movement have suppressed and oppressed the, the black female voice? in these movements it It is
3: is. what yeah yeah well that's a that's another conversation that we will we'll we'll probably end up having before we're done here tonight (laughs) and and that's an important conversation to have but yes Uh, isn't there a
0: connection with elizabeth warren with that whole leave of absence story or is that like an urban legend like some Uh, people some people claim that uh, Harvard, the woman of color that they got was Elizabeth Warren because she represented <laughs> herself as...
1: Oh, uh, Cherokee.
0: No. <laughs> is that an urban legend or is that... Is that... That, that,
3: that is an urban legend. Okay. Uh, the, the reality is that the, the woman who they got was Lanny Guineer, who is now a tenured, you know, distinguished professor of law at Harvard Law School. And it's really petty the way Harvard sort of played this out, because they told Derek Bell that he had to come back or else he was going to be terminated, and he told them that he wasn't going to come back, so they terminated him, and right after they terminated him, they hired a black woman, Lanny Guineer. So it was almost like spiteful. Right, right, and Derek Bell spent out the rest of his legal career as a recurring visiting professor of law at NYU, (laughs) in new york city so that's uh, un-
0: until his death in 2011 so 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 NYU just wouldn't pick him up they made him a visiting professor of law that's... well he, he actually wanted it that way oh, he wanted he, that way
3: okay. he wanted it that way because if he was classified as visiting he didn't have to go to faculty meetings he didn't have to do all of the administrative stuff he could just focus on his work and so i think he preferred it that way
0: so he didn't want to do all the politicking and uh Right. Glad handing and all that stuff. Right, right. He was trying
3: to stay out of that if he as much as as much as he could. Yeah. I
0: had some notes that I was taking down while you were while you were talking. I didn't want to interrupt you because it was uh you were on the roll. But you know, something that came through my mind when you were talking was uh uh Kwame Torre had that quote about how you can't appeal to, you know, the sense of justice of your oppressor, because your oppressor needs to have a conscience to for that to work. And if, I feel like that kind of overlaps a lot with what you're saying with Derek Bell, like this idea that uh, everything they do that helps black people happens to also help them help themselves as well. And I feel like uh, those strains have been out there with other people. I don't know if Derek Bell had any particular uh, interest in Kwame or if they just came to similar conclusions um, differently. Well, right? Yeah.
3: Yeah. Yeah. No, no, that's a good point. I think uh, Derek Bell, it's important to remember that he is he is working within an African-American social and political heritage. So uh, he I don't know of any explicit engagement he has with the work of Kwame Ture, but I do know that he does have a very explicit engagement in a certain lineage that comes from uh, Martin Delaney in the 19th century and on into Ralph Bunch in the 20th century. Um, because in his in his magnum opus, Race, Racism, and American Law, which he edited, he updated just three years before his death in 2008, he goes on at length to talk about Ralph Bunch, who was the Harvard-trained political theorist who in the 1930s in the Journal of Negro Education penned an essay in which he basically told Black people to stop going to the courts and expecting to get fair treatment. That litigation as a civil rights strategy was doomed to failure because when it comes to Black people, the Supreme Court has a tendency to engage in such a high level of abstraction that is so far removed from the reality on the ground and the material conditions of of racism that we're just going to end up strengthening racism. This is an insight that comes from Ralph Bunch. And so much of what Derrick Bell has to say is explicitly engaged with the work of Ralph Bunch and some contemporary scholars, like uh, Dr. Tommy J. Curry at the University of Edinburgh, in Scotland, have also traced that lineage back to Martin Delaney, who basically had an emigration strategy in the 19th century and said, Look, racism isn't getting any better here. It won't get better here, so we should get out of here. And Derek Bell sort of argues not that there should be an emigration strategy, but his his thesis is called racial realism. And what he says is Once we realize that racism is permanent, what are we gonna do? How are we gonna deal with it? We have to come up with some strategies that take that into account. So I don't, again, I don't know of any explicit engagement with Kwame Ture, but Derek Bell is certainly working within a long tradition of African-American social and political thought. That runs back through the 20th century and all the way back into the 19th century.
0: And that, I would say, is uh, kind of cynical as as well. And I don't mean that in a bad way, but, you know, a uh, type of healthy cyn- cynicism. I think you find a lot of that in, in Malcolm, too, like this idea that you're not going to be able to expect um, white people to do things out of the goodness of of their, of their hearts. That's right.
3: That's right. I mean, if you, if you study the election of Barack Obama, for example, that's a classic case of interest convergence here, you had in 2008 upper middle-class white people who were bleeding tens of thousands of dollars a day, some of them from their retirement accounts because of profligate wall street spending. And the country was entering into this crisis, which led to the occupy movement, right? And and people standing up and and protesting against Wall Street and all of that. And when people looked at the alternatives for president, they weren't thinking, oh, we should not we shouldn't be racist anymore in America. Let's elect Barack Obama because we're not we're no longer racist. They were thinking, who is more competent to help save my money? That's what they were thinking about. So, you know, you had the worst financial crisis just so happened to come along at a time when uh, what appeared to be a competent black person was running for the presidency. And we end up with Barack Obama, not because America is any less racist, but because upper middle class, the, the financial interests of upper middle class whites just so happened to coincide with the hopes and dreams of black people. And so the Obama presidency didn't do anything to alleviate racism. The Obama presidency actually showed how bad racism really is. And what we end up with is a nice symbol it's a racial symbol. We can point to it and some people will point to it and say we're not racist. We've had a black president. But Derek Bell uh, would argue, and I think rightly so, that's a classic case of interest convergence.
1: I'd, I'd even say that the pacification of black people is in their interest. You know what I mean? Yes. Um, it's black people with the Obama plates in, on their you know, (laughs) those commemorative Obama plates sitting in the glass case or have them on the wall, right? Mm -hmm. Um, It's, somebody gave me a Michelle Obama wallet. It's literally Michelle Obama's picture all over. It was weird. I was like, why would I want this? You know? Um, (laughs) 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 It was, it was just weird on its own. Like, never Mm -hmm. in my life have I said, let me get a thing with an actual person. Not like a painting or an art, like an actual person. But anyway, um, I find it, that I find that it clearly benefited whites in so many ways, not just financially, but it also served a purpose in keeping Black people satisfied, right? Because we also, at the time, are having all these conversations about representation. And what that is and what that looks like. Right. Um, Obama being married to a black American woman specifically, you know, was part of that package. Right. It's like, you know, we're getting black women are being seen black girl magic. You know, we have all this stuff coming out. Right. Um, without actually anything tangible, helping black women, not a single thing. Right. That's right. Not That's a right. single thing. Cause mm-hmm. black women's sons were getting murdered in the streets. All black women got to do was parade across the stage at the Democratic Party <laughs> National Convention, right? Um, literally. This is literally what they did, right? Sure. Um we haven't had any real um, we haven't had any real, I'll say tangible outcomes or benefits from having this figure, uh, this black president, you know, who who it, it was a to me it was a very carefully selected black president, right? But mm-hmm. he had he had he couldn't be too black. He really couldn't, right? Yeah. Um, What were you going to say, Mario? Uh, well, I was going to say, as a matter of fact,
2: we had some losses, some tangible losses in terms of black wealth and things like that under under his presidency. And um, to to kind of both um, lift um, Tim's point about uh, the people who elected Barack Obama, who had an interest in seeing him get elected, they made out like bandits during his presidency. You know what I'm saying? Like their white wealth went up under
1: Obama, <laughs> yeah. you know what I'm right. saying, as black
2: wealth went, was reduced, right. you know, and, and, and uh, I don't want to, that's right, Mario, I
3: think that's exactly right, and, and Vita, I'd agree with you too, I'm not here to cast any, any aspersions against Barack Obama or Michelle Obama, I don't know them personally, but what I do know is that their election, Derek Bell would identify as a racial symbol they were only, Barack Obama was elected because he was the one who white people saw as most competent. I mean, think about it. John McCain, rest his soul, was on TV talking about the fundamentals of the economy are strong, and, and white people who retired as millionaires after, at the end of the Clinton administration were now losing, some of them, upwards of $100,000 a day from their retirement accounts and some of them had to go back and work at mcdonald's if you if you go look at some of the news coverage around 2008 you'll see that's what white people had to do and then you have sarah palin who was like well i can keep an eye on russia from my back window in alaska and white people were looking around like, "Wait a minute,
1: yo, they, that was." Like the oddest, oh, we, I know, man, I know, I know. This is this man. point has been hammered a million times <laughs> during that election, right? right? During that during that election season. But I, I really am completely baffled by her, uh, Sarah Palin, as the VP, you know, running mate. Like that mm-hmm. shit still boggled my mind because it wasn't even like, because, you know, the internet and TV and media, they pick who they like and don't like and they make fun of them, right? And they make fun of them in certain ways. But Sarah Palin was, like, blatantly an airhead. Like, it well, wasn't even... That's,
3: that's <laughs> right. It wasn't even... it wasn't I mean, she... It was so bad that she was on Saturday Night Live participating in the skits that were... <laughs> Making fun her. of her. <laughs> that's how... That's Brown. how... Crazy it was, right? And, <laughs> <laughs> and what's, what's also wild is, and oh I, I, have a, I have a theory on this, Vita uh, and Mario and T that just came to me. I can, I'll run it by y'all. Y'all will be my sounding board. Sarah Palin was just a little before her time because had mm. she come along during the Trump era, oh. all of her stupidity... That was ridiculed would have been celebrated had she been Her. Trump's running mate. Mm, <laughs> Her, track. Trump's right.
1: It, it would have been that's scary. She, she you a, know, it's true. It's scary because you know it's true.
3: It, it, she was just a little too early. If she had yeah. come along a little bit later, you know, then it would it would have worked out. But yeah. again, I'll give I'll give a
0: follow up theory to that that mm-hmm. might be a little more controversial. Mm-hmm. I think. She was ahead of her time. But the reason why Trump was able to um, be so dumb and become president is because I think Obama kind of trivialized the presidency first. But people don't fully credit it for him because he was more polished and patrician. But I mean, he, I think, is he was a celebrity president yeah, or influencer president before um, That's
1: super uh, true. Trump he- Trump
0: was. He just had more polish to it mm-hmm. where i think trump just didn't even give the um uh, mm-hmm. statesman i mean like, like what is obama doing now? he just wins sorts for billionaires and does netflix deals and he's doing spotify playlists like he's not even president anymore like yeah. like jimmy carter at least is doing like these initiatives and whatever mm-hmm. uh you know with these causes he has no causes as far as i can tell obama just does playlists and reading lists like he's oprah I, I don't... Yeah. Um,
1: it's funny that you say that because I was just watching a clip the other day of... Um, I saw it when it aired funny enough, but of Michelle Obama on Ellen at the at the store at like CVS or something and Ellen's being funny. Quote unquote being funny. She's really goofy and <laughs> annoying. And... Um, you know, Michelle Obama's in on this whole thing. You know, she's doing things with Beyonce. And, you know, it was yeah. just, they, always you, having rappers
0: at the White House and different and all celebrities. These,
1: and, and you know what's so funny is people really see those things and they somehow think that shit's natural. You know, like, nobody thinks that like there's somebody in a room or a group of people in a room strategizing how they're going to make obama a lasting symbol
0: in america right mm-hmm. so yeah all he does is produce entertainment now but something else i think too another theory i have is i think when obama came in i was um uh, looking at what like conservative and talk radio people were saying and everything and and he's serious to believe this they were saying stuff like man this guy i, I is like michael savage he's like a really uh oh, racist right way guy but he's says crazy stuff and and he was dead ass he was like Watch, there's going to be old men in Guayabara shirts sitting in the White House lawn playing dominoes. There's going to be 40-ounce cans on the front lawn once he becomes president. He's going to be um, pawning the furniture. It's going to be, you know, all this stuff. It's going to be the third world. And, you know, to Obama's credit, it didn't happen. Like, I don't think he... Uh, was a great president, but he was a competent one. Uh, the country didn't burst into flames. It didn't turn into, um, you know, the L.A. uprisings, like what Michael Savage said was going to happen. So I think what conservatives were like where we can't paint him as incredibly incompetent and we can't paint him as a total uh, F-up because at the end of the day, America was still standing, uh, you know, and some people would say well, it did fine. Uh, they were like, we're going to devalue the whole presidency itself and just put the biggest moron there and Mm. then make it like, okay, so he didn't mess up, but anybody can do this. Look, look, look at who we're going to put in there. Like, you know, this, this guy. So I think uh, that was on some level part of the strategy. Like just, just make the whole presidency. uh, If we can't make the man into a joke, we're going to make the whole job into a joke and devalue him that way. So I think well, that's where Sarah Palin well, kind of. I, well,
1: I was gonna yeah. also add. I want to add to that though, yeah. because I was kind of a caveat to your point, honestly, about Trump. Um, Trump benefited a lot of people. It even benefited the people who pretended to hate him because they got to come out as some sort of warrior for social justice, right? They came out the as resistance. The, the resistance, right? The, you know, they're they're somehow they're now more left than they really actually are because you could just use Trump's name. You know, uh, they they're the ones who made it. So as soon as you say Trump, it's, it's supposed to evoke a certain type of response. Right. Um, and they benefited greatly off of that. And I would also blame them. I mean, blame not blame Trump, but uh, credit Trump rather <laughs> for how now these spaces operate. Right. As far as social media, as far as the media space itself, you know, a lot of these people are operating Like a reality show and they're getting paid off of operating like a reality show and having clickbait and having fake drama in social justice spaces. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, you have these you have professors on Twitter talking shit and arguing and saying stupid shit, having unnecessary conversations about nothing. You know what I mean? But you're supposed to be our public intellectuals. You're always on TV, but you're out here having stupid arguments because you're where well, you're wrong. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Brittany Cooper uh, is like a big public intellectual, and she recently said that uh, Putin was doing this stuff because he knows black women are Democrats' biggest base, and he's trying to attack, uh, you know, the, the, the Ukraine as the FU to black women, and this is and this is why you know Democratic Party needs to. Support black women even more, and I was like, "Are oh, you like serious? Like, is, this, is this for, for real?" Yeah,
3: I, <sighs> I, I, I don't. I consider it my highest honor that Britney Cooper has blocked me.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh, whoa! Um, okay, so that's a sign you're doing something right.
3: She, yeah, she blocked bro. me. She blocked me a long time ago, and I, I wear that as a badge of honor. Uh, I, I don't. To Vita's point earlier when you expressed your sarcastic surprise at Derrick Bell standing up for Black women, uh, one of the things, one of the trends in critical race theory that has really driven a wedge between Black men and women, why, I don't know, is this idea that, uh, so one of Derrick Bell's students or one of his protégés, I believe, her name's Kimberly Crenshaw.
0: Yep, yep, Kim- yep.
3: Kimberly Crenshaw- I was Crenshaw. gonna ask
2: where she came into the equation, okay. Right, so yeah. Kimberly Crenshaw
3: developed her theory of intersectionality. Right. And Kim, according to Kimberly Crenshaw, uh, and, I, and I think she's right about this, Black women suffer not only from racism, but they suffer from uh, sexism. And the move that Kimberly Crenshaw makes that I think is problematic is that she went from Derrick Bell's claim that racism is permanent to her own unique claim that sexism was likewise permanent. Wow. Okay. And when she makes that move, she ends up engaging in the same kind of abstraction that critical race theory complains about with the courts. How does that happen? Well, when you start talking about sexism being permanent, you start talking about male and female in feminist terms that are completely removed from certain historical contingencies that don't allow a neat mapping of Black man on Black woman the way that white men treat white women. Right. and so what we end up with is a lot of theories coming out of intersectional fe- of intersectionality because intersectionality uncritically appropriates an abstract account of male and female from feminism without accounting for the historical realities of the black male which shows, for example, that during slavery, black men were raped just as much as black women. But we don't hear about that because the popular narrative on the left is to talk about the rape of black women. And here's the problem. This is not a zero sum game. If you talk about black male suffering, it doesn't mean that you're negating the suffering of black women, two things can be true at the same time. It can be true that black women have suffered sexualized oppression, but it can also be true that black men have suffered a certain level of sexualized oppression. There's a recent oh. book by a white historian at Howard University, an HBCU. How <laughs> ironic is that? A white historian at an HBCU writes a book about black men being raped during slavery, and it's titled Rethinking Rufus. did we have that guy on Yeah, Thomas Foster.
0: Thomas Foster,
3: we had him as Tom- a guest. Thomas Foster, that's right. Yeah. That's right. And so he yeah. writes about that. So James Baldwin Wrote extensively about the homoeroticism of white men toward black men that leads to things like Amadou Diallo being sodomized with a plunger, mm. right in the, in the, in the bowels of the New York Police City Police Department. So so we we have to get away from this idea that it's somehow wrong to talk about <clears throat> the suffering of black men, and we have to get away from this idea that black men are privileged in the same way that white men are privileged. And this idea that black men are the white men of the black community, which to me is just downright silly because we don't have access to any institutions that we own like white men do. Bell Hooks constructed a whole theory about black men that was based on no empirical evidence whatsoever.
2: Yeah, she has no she, citations. Yeah, I want to, I, I go ahead, go ahead, Tim. No, 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 I was
3: just going to st- finish my point by saying, you know, she she has, I, I sort of joke about this, she has a theory of knowledge without any knowledge. I don't know, I don't know how you develop a theory, I mean, imagine the uproar if a black man developed a theory about black women in the absence of any empirical data, Right. and right. then began to castigate black women for not having their to act together.
2: Right. but in that case, their experience trumps, you know, whatever academic rigor is lacking in the in the premise. But I I do want to say this in Kimberly Crenshaw's somewhat in her defense. um, I, I, I saw a couple of interviews with her early on, maybe about four years ago or so, when this whole topic of intersectionality was kind of floating around social media and things like that. And I know initially or originally she tried to give a much more nuanced um, definition of what she meant by that in terms of her her um, her academic theory. And I think what ended up happening with her is she kind of fell victim to the mob, so to speak, because the casual reader, your casual social media presence, took the phrase or the term intersectionality, you know, and kind of put their own spin on it so that they became a, a, a key part of this oppression Olympics that we see now. So they would say, "Okay, I'm black, but I'm also a woman and I'm also gay. So my identities and the suffrages that I have under those identities trump you just being a black male because you're black, but you're straight. So you have access to patriarchy and things like that. From what I recall, she she didn't present intersectionality as something like that that was something that was kind of done by um by layman you know they, they called the, the cur-
0: call that, call that the additive theory of you know just adding uh, uh oppressions like mm. like simple math but the right. thing with her is she she sometimes says the right thing about that but the reason i stopped giving her credit is because i feel like she goes back and forth to whatever's convenient well that's and,
2: what I, that's what i'm saying she yeah. she kind of is falling because that mob mentality is, is real heavy on social media, man. That can get to a lot of people. And um, I think because I think something similar happened with Bell Hooks. Bell Hooks tried to say that she tried to walk back some of her rhetoric. And she said, well, you know, you can't put black men in with white men because black men don't have access to patriarchy. And they went nuts. I mean, they called her everything but a child of God. on, uh, well, on social I, media.
3: I mean, I think I think there's a lot of people out there on social media who have a don't really have an understanding of what right. they're talking about. They just take mm-hmm. words and they kind of put them together. And it, he, here's a, a couple of points. Uh, Kimberly Crenshaw makes her point about uh, feminism and its influence on intersectionality in the 2010 Law Journal article in the Tulane Law Journal. And that's where she really sets forth her, forth her theory. And that's where you see this uncritical appropriation of feminist ideology, which is actually, um, and Tommy Curry has shown this in some of his recent work, is actually based on racist tropes and stereotypes about black men that date back to reconstruction. Black men are rapists, black men are criminals, black men are goons who are unworthy of the right to vote. That's what first wave feminism was about. First wave feminism was not about uh, women in general getting the right to vote because black women didn't get the right to vote with the passage of the nineteenth amendment. Not if you lived in the not if you lived in the South, you right. didn't, right? I mean the 15th Amendment was ratified in 1870 and black people didn't get the right to vote secured in federal law until 95 years later, in nineteen sixty five. Today is the anniversary of Bloody Sunday. The first attempt to march across the bridge, Edmund Pettus Bridge from Selma to Montgomery. Today is the day, if you go and look at the, the old black and white footage, that you'll see a young John Lewis with his backpack being ran over by, by whites, right? So this whole idea of, uh, of intersectionality, I think, has to account for this flawed understanding of patriarchy, which is also problematic. Because rightly understood, black men could never be patriarchs because black men were not considered human beings. When you study 19th century ethnology, which is the basis for so much of what comes out of first wave feminism, patriarchy was about white women seeking political and social solidarity with white men, and they were seeking that because white women were the patriarchs. Why? Because they could give birth to patriarchs. So patriarchy was actually a term of white social and political solidarity that was never really intended to apply to anyone outside of the white community. So we, we run around talking about, you know, in 22, you know, on social media, on Twitter, or on Instagram, or wherever, you know, you'll see people getting into fights and talking about, oh, well, uh, you know, you're a black male patriarch. That, that phraseology is an oxymoron. Yeah. So, but there's a history that we don't know. And, you know, I like to, you know, I like to say when we ignore history, people die. You know, you, if you're not going to pay attention right. to the historical underpinnings of the terminology that you're using to really understand how it works and to understand that feminism is in some sense more about race than it is about gender, at least in the United States, then, you know, the conversations that you're having really are just going nowhere fast.
2: True yeah. that, true that. So, okay, let, let's let's um kind of circle back to um, the critical race theory. So, There's a lot of conversation. We kind of touched on this a little bit earlier when we were talking to him. Um, Mm -hmm. There's a conversation going on across the country right now where people want to put a stop to this evil uh, menace of critical race theory. And, um, you know, it's based what what I think on a lot of misnomers, a a lot of um, ad hominem stuff. And um, they're just kind of taking basic history and even calling that critical race theory. Um, Can you touch on that a little bit, just as far as correcting some of the misinformation that's out there and and, uh, give us your take on that?
3: Sure. Of course, Mario. Well, my initial take on what's with the conversations we're seeing nowadays is that it's a political football that is much ado about nothing. It is a solution in search of a problem. The fact of the matter is critical race theory is not being taught in schools. If you took the average sixth grader or eighth grader or 12th grader, and ask them something about Derek Bell, they'd have no idea who you were talking about. They would have no idea about racial realism. None of the... The bottom line is legal theory at the level that Derrick Bell is, is writing about it and social theory at the level he's writing about it is only taught in law schools or in colleges and universities. I taught critical race theory here at my university a year ago. So let's just, I think let's set that record straight. I think what ends up happening is because people know so little about it, it gives people on the far right, certain ide- ideologues on the far right the opportunity to sort of create the narrative. So they make critical race theory about things that it's not about. For example, the 1619 Project by Nicole Hannah-Jones. It's a wonderful right. work of journalism, but it's it may even be a wonderful work of history, but it's not critical race theory. It's, right. not, it's not something that, is, uh, that tells us uh, what critical race theory is, does any of its central tenets, right? right. Uh, and while theories do often evolve, I think it's important to remember that the right, the far right has a problem with trying to ban something in schools that's not even being taught. And the far left has a problem because it tries to turn critical race theory into something that it was never intended to be. If you, if you notice, we began our discussion by talking about how for Derrick Bell, critical, the, one of the first tenets of critical race theory is that there will be no racial utopia, mm-hmm. right? And yet what ends up happening with the proliferation of one identity after another, you're, so you're, you're a black woman, you're queer, you're trans, you're- oh, That's heavy. You, you start to pile on identities and all of a sudden now the left has hijacked critical race theory and made it about the development of a racial utopia which is completely at odds with the work of derrick bell mm.
1: which clearly says that race is permanent exactly. <laughs> racism, racism is mm-hmm. permanent
3: racism right. is mm-hmm. permanent and, and i'll give you another example there's a i'm writing an essay now about the role of uh, black male death in black Christianity, in black churches. And one of the problems in black churches is that you have uh, a deep feminist influence in Mm -hmm. certain black churches, a deep intersectional influence in certain black churches that just ends up preaching to black men and sort of moralizing on them, telling them they have to get their act together, telling them that they're always already oppressing Uh, black women and that they need Mm -hmm. to do better and more importantly telling them to identify with a Jesus who had to die in order to save other people Mm -hmm. so black men are sort of put on with this messianic complex and so forth but the point that I want to make here our entire purpose is to sacrifice exactly that that it that it becomes a zero-sum game that we have to die in order for other people to be saved Right. And and this is very unhealthy, right? This yeah, is something absolutely. that yeah. it's just not a healthy way for black men to see themselves. Right. Mm-hmm. But but what and so what ends up happening on top of that is there's a, a German theologian who comes up with this idea of kyriarchy, and it's a theological idea, and she tries to argue that privilege and oppression are always shifting, that if you're black and you're male, you can be oppressive over somebody who's trans. And mm-hmm. if you're trans and, but you're white, you can be oppressive over somebody who's black. And so she has this shift, this idea of shifting social positions, which is in, completely inconsistent with Derrick Bell, right? Oh completely. I mean, Derrick Bell's analysis of race is that racism is permanent And that if I'm black, I'm never able to shift out of my social position to oppress anyone else. Now, if I'm black, can I do things that are wrong? Of course. Can can I be a misogynist? Exactly. Can Uh, I be a a misogynist as an individual? Absolutely. absolutely. Can I be abusive? Of course I can, right? But that's not to say that black men do that with the same level of power that white men do. Right. Sure. And and that's the problem. So well I
1: think it's even beyond that. It's the it's this it's the idea that it's inherent in black men. Right. The, mm. So it's mm. not it's it's that yeah. it's you know, that inherently black men are abusive. Inherently black so we can't let them have power. Notice that's a lot that's a lot of the conversation is that oh black men just want white men power. You know, Um, Mm -hmm. they just want to, you know, they want a different type of patriarchy. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. But it's black patriarchy. That's all they want. But but hold on real quick. Mm -hmm. But in reality, um, it's really a way of trying to say that we have to stop these black men and we have to all work together to stop these black men Mm -hmm. because they're inherently meant they're inherently. Um, abusive and evil and all these other things. Go
0: ahead, I think T. it's also like a double bind. Like, like a double bind is like when someone puts you in a no one situation because they don't really have any good faith interest in working with you. They just want they just don't want anything to do with you. So they make these fake uh, conflicts where you lose either way. And uh, what's interesting is they'll say Black men can't be trusted with uh, power because they're inherently rapey or, you know, whatever. But it also... The same people who constantly be on Twitter talking about uh, black men aren't protecting black women and your failed men and everything. So it's like, okay, how can black men protect black women without patriarchy access to a system? But that's why I think a lot of it's like just bad faith. I think really uh, to the idea that racism is permanent, I think there are a group of people out there who have come up with the conclusion racism is permanent, but maybe it's only permanent for black men. And if we can distance ourselves from them, uh, mm. Mm. we can mm. we can cross the finish line. Like they're the albatross around our neck. White people really hate them more. You know, if you look at things like mm. um, Called Again, The Man Just Died, Jim Sedanian, the social dominance theory and the mm-hmm. idea that um, mm-hmm. outgroup men are the real focus of racism. I think a lot of what intersectionality and its proponents, especially online, want to do really is we want to weigh to justify excluding black men no matter what. So if they protect black women or try, you know, try to be patriarchal, then they're the white people of black people. But if they um, don't act patriarchal, you know, know, we'll encourage them to be carefree black boys and put flowers in their hair and redefine masculinity. But then when they don't um, protect black women or whatever, then it's like you're basically criticizing them for not being patriarchs. And I just think really a lot of what is happening is, we just want an excuse to cross the finish line without black men. Like we've come to some understanding on a basic level that black men are the deal breaker. And
1: and I think, well, since we've been having this conversation, I want to be clear. I'm definitely not saying, and I'm pretty sure none of you guys are saying that this is inherent in black women to be this way. We're talking about a select yeah, of group. Course. And I'm just saying yeah, that absolutely. because I think um, sometimes when things are not explicitly said, it's assumed we're saying. It's assumed we're saying something else, and I just want to make sure that's explicitly said. We not are fair. not saying that um, this is all black women. This is a very select group. In fact, I would say it's, a, it's the group that hates other black women. To be honest with you, um,
0: and they're not even all black women. There's a lot of black men in
2: these camps.
1: That's absolutely true. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely true. a very um, vocal
2: minority. We'll, we'll, we'll say it like that. Yeah, so very Abso- vocal.
1: absolutely. Because yeah. if we look at the, if we look at, it- if we look in real life within the black community, how we interact with each other, how we live with amongst each other, of, it's just like how you said. Of course, you can be an abuser, of course, but so can I, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, of course, you can be a, a sexual assaulter, but so can I. As, you know that that mm-hmm. didn't that didn't disappear just because I'm a woman, right?
0: But, right. But one one way you notice people are operating in bad faith is they're capable of understanding this because. When a white person talks to them about reverse racism, they'll be like, oh, uh, black people lack the structural power, I mean, the structural power to do systemic racism. All black people can do is name call or bully or whatever, but we don't have access to power to actually enforce our bigotry and whatever. But that's the same um, blind spot that we tend to have when it comes to patriarchy, because it's like Mm -hmm. what... um, Dr. Golden was describing is, you know, you can be a bully, you can be a misogynist or whatever, but patriarchy requires a systemic, you know, component, a political that's component, true. just like mm-hmm. systemic uh, racism does. But these people suddenly kind of play dumb. And that's why I kind of think a lot of it is just kind of a bad faith making excuses to just, you know, uh maybe racism is permanent, but maybe a certain class of educated black women or whatever might be able to. Get out of it, and and I'm not putting words in Doctor uh Golden's mouth. I want to make that clear. This is call him Tim, yeah. call him sure. Tim. Uh, yeah, in uh, in Tim, I'm not putting words in Tim's mouth. This is no, no, no. The opinions of the show. So mm. you know,
3: no, I I just I, I want to echo what you just said, T and and Vita. I think your point is is really an important point to be made. I don't think uh anyone, uh any one of us, are saying that. Uh, We're certainly not saying black men are inherently, you know, evil. And we're not saying that black women are inherently accusatory or misandric.
1: And and by the way, I'm saying that because there is a faction of men that take like Dr. Curry's book it's funny these guys will be harassing me with Dr. Curry's book Mm -hmm. in their profile picture Mm -hmm. oh and I'm thinking like I don't think he backs up this shit you're saying because there are some Mm -hmm. who really believe well black women hate black men and I think that's because a lot of them just sit on the internet and get their feelings hurt all day and I'm not judging them for that because I did that when I was 19 years old you know looking at YouTube (laughs) and all these black men hate black women shit then I believed it for a while you know Mm -hmm. Um, until I got back to real life and I was like you know That's
3: right. My brother
1: is like my best friend. <laughs> you and, know? and that's,
3: and right. that's, I think, what we we have to we have to understand is that uh, I like what Mario said. We're talking about a a, a vociferous and regrettably highly vociferous. influential <laughs> minority of people, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, and but the the real truth is, just because you're loud, don't mean you're right. And there you go. And that's something to to keep in mind. I think any any sober minded reflection on this subject is going to lead people to ask the question, what in the world are black men and black women doing to each other? Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, that's the, the real question. Now, again, we we have to, uh, so much of what takes place on social media is so so profoundly, so. I'm sorry, so woefully uninformed, you know, historically. You have people who pick up academic words and phrases, people who develop, uh, probably fabricate profiles and say they're uh-huh. Dr. This or Dr. That. And, yep. you know, we have a lot of keyboard courage, right? We live <laughs> in a world where exactly. people People hide behind their phones and, and shroud themselves in anonymity and, and say this and say that. And, you know, everything deteriorates into a, a Twitter fight where people end up posting uh, gifts and laughing at each other and, you know, who can get the most likes. That's not really a serious conversation. What I appreciate about the forum that you all have and that you all are providing uh, for, for this conversation is that hopefully as people listen to this discussion, they'll become more aware of what is actually happening and what's not happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, the sad part is that so much of what takes place on social media really has no idea what patriarchy is all about because if it right. did, then the conversations would be very different. Um, right. Again, it's, it's fascinating to me that we can end up uh, using the same racist tropes to denigrate black men in 2022 that were used by white women who supported abolition during slavery, but then turned around and after emancipation said that ignorant, uneducated, drunk, sexually hyperactive black men should not get the right to vote before virtuous white women. Mm-hmm. I will I will slightly disagree the, with you.
0: Well, okay, oh, on, 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 on 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 one thing, uh you say that if they understood patriarchy, the conversations would be different. I think they would be exactly the same cuz I don't think they actually <laughs> care about the truth. I think <laughs> They want
1: the I, I knew, I knew when you said bro, bro that. I know was coming point. with the I, time, I, I, I knew That's you right. Well, that. you know what, Hey, If yeah.
3: if if you're right about that, and I have no reason to think that that you're wrong, um, so maybe I maybe I'll walk back that statement a little bit. If you're right about that, then it's a lot worse than I thought
0: it was. <laughs>
2: uh.
0: The reason I say that is because because we have the misfortune of arguing with these people, and you can oh, give them the most mean, airtight proof much, on yeah. anything. And you start realizing, OK, they just want this end result and they will twist and do any type of motivated reasoning or out of context, bad faith. Like they will. They're amorphous. Yeah, they will lie. Right. Like you will tell them, like, look, the sky is blue. They'll be like, well, w- what is blue? You know, uh, right. You know, they, they'll say anything. And I, say, and I just think a lot of people, um, it's not ignorance or they just don't really care what's true or false. They just want this result for whatever. uh, Well, that's a lot of
2: thinking about things today, period. Like, uh, um, you know, relativism is really, um, taking over the mindset of a lot of people, man. So, when we have these conversations and you bring up all these facts and figures and and the data that says this and it's contrary to people's personal experiences and anecdotes and everything like that, the way it's set up now is people going to go with, you know, their feelings, they're going to go with um their personal experiences and their personal anecdotes, man, even in the face of of data and things like that. So, um that's that's a very That's a very difficult thing to combat when a person's um, when a person's compass is, is, you know, more relativism and situational ethics. How do you how do you get to a point of consensus on anything that's true? You know what I'm saying? Mario,
0: you know, what makes me think of you ever argue with somebody and you probably had this with your kids. You think the arguments about one thing and you're litigating that one thing and then you realize it was never really about that thing. They're mad about something you said like a year ago. (laughs) (laughs) And and you think you're arguing about cleaning the room, you know, and it's like really something else. All right, y'all. So that is the end of part one. Go to, again, patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks or click the link in the show notes to get part two. Be good.